0: Let
1: us pray. Let us pray. O God, whom
0: saints and angels delight to worship in heaven, be ever-present with your servants who seek through art and worship to perfect the praises offered by your people on earth. And grant to them even now glimpses of your beauty, and make them worthy at length to behold it, even, behold it unveiled forevermore through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, tell would you join me up here? Thank yeah. you. Welcome to everyone on this uh, cold and frosty evening. Hooray for all of you for braving the ice! Thank you all so much for for coming out. Uh, this is the first in a three-part series, the uh, Arts and Culture series that we're doing here at the Cathedral Church of the Advent. Uh, my name is Matt Schneider. I'm the Canon for Parish Life and Evangelism here, and I'm hosting you this evening. And our guest tonight is. Kevin Twitt, we're going to do a little bit of an interview and um, some more songs. Um, But just a couple of announcements before we get started. If you have a cell phone on you, could you please silence it or put it on vibrate, um, just so we can enjoy the the evening. And uh, we're recording this, so if your phone rings, it will be in the recording. And just so you know, uh, The the two upcoming events uh, in this series are going to be one in April on April 9th, Thursday, April 9th at 7 p.m. That's a book reading with an author named Matt Redmond who wrote a book called God of the Mundane. And that's not going to be here, it's going to be at our facility called Cranmer House in Mountain Rope Village. And in May, we're going to be doing an interview and book reading with uh, David Zoll, who's the director of Mockenberg Ministries And he wrote a book called uh, "A Mess of Help" from the crucified soul of rock and roll. Um, I just got that. You did okay. Well, if you want to come back, yeah, (laughs) yeah, Yeah, that's a great great. (laughs) (laughs) one. And that will be Thursday, May seventh, at seven p.m. Also at Kramer House Mm -hmm. in Mountain Brook Village. and by the way, at each event, we're going to have uh, a culinary artist providing the food. And tonight, we have uh, Leslie Tiara from Bakesmith. Leslie, do you want to stand up? Let's just. <laughs> think, uh, <laughs> there, are, there are macaroons and macarons, and do you say it, and um, nice. some nice desserts back there still. So after the event, please uh, partake in that. And. Um, So our guest tonight is, as I said, Kevin Twitt, who is the founder of uh, Indelible Grace and a minister with RUF at Belmont University Mm -hmm. in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I'm just going to hand it over to you, Kevin. Can you sort of give us your story?
1: Who are you? Who am I? I actually grew up in the Episcopal Church. I I was telling you that -hmm. until I went off to college (laughs) and kind of been all over the place Was christened as a Lutheran, so I'm kind of a... Denominational mud of sorts, Presbyterian minister now. Um, I guess, you know, indelible grace, you know, I like to describe it as flowing out of some of the convictions that RUF has. RUF is the denominational college ministry of the Presbyterian Church in America. And one of the things that is distinctive as compared to some parachurch kinds of ministries is ordained campus ministers. Um, and I think that because of that, there's probably more attendedness to the long-term spiritual condition of the people that come through our ministry. So what I would say is when I first was exposed to RUF, they were already trying to sing hymns and scripture songs and preaching a full kind of sermon, which my background in campus ministry and various different groups I've been with in college, that was rather unusual. Um, But to them it was important because their conviction that worship is formative and pastors should attend to the kinds of songs that we sing, uh, as we, talk, we talked yeah. a little earlier. That sometimes, you know, some of the songs maybe can undermine even some of the gospel messages that we're trying to, to preach to people. Sometimes just because of what they don't say, sometimes because of what they do say. And so you know, that was already kind of a culture at RUF. I've been had a background in music. I went to Berkeley College of Music and um, and then I moved down to Nashville, I was working as a recording engineer went off to seminary, when I came back from seminary is when I, you know, kind of this movement was beginning in a lot of ways. And um, the first one I wrote, actually the first hymn tune I wrote was that one, we just did, Rise, and rise. And it was at a kind of a renewal conference um, um, at a retreat center in North Carolina. And the guy who led the meeting had us try to sing that hymn and it didn't really, the tune that was in our hymnal didn't really seem to fit the mood of it, and it was more dirge-like, and I thought, wow, the words are so great, but um, it'd be
0: nice to have a tune that seemed to fit the mood. And, and that's t- very subjective, of course. And you've told me you've since slowed it down. We played a little bit faster. Sometimes,
1: or... yeah, depending on the context, if there's a more multi-generational group, then sometimes a little slower um, can make it more easy to say, I think, especially some of the syncopated you know, rhythms, but that's,
0: you know, you gotta get to know your congregation and find that. I, one of the things I love about Kevin is the, the stories that he tells along with the, the hymns. Yeah. Can you just talk a little bit about the story behind Rise My Soul? Yeah, oh yeah, you mean like Charles Wesley's text? Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's a great story. Um, Charles Wesley got lots of letters uh, from his, you know, when you write hymns, and people would write him letters. Um, there's a guy, Bruce Hindmarsh, teaches at Regent uh, College up in Vancouver, who discovered a notebook that Charles Wesley had taken these letters and pasted them into this notebook. Um, and he got more letters of people tracing their conversion to that hymn than any other hymn that he wrote. Huh. It's not in the Methodist hymnal anymore. Huh. So when I found that in a Presbyterian hymnal and retuned it, it's actually a communion hymn, um, which is which is pretty interesting. And it, you just recently discovered that. I've more more recently, I met a man named Lester Ruth, who's a worship professor at Duke. Um, and he's president of the Charles Wesley Society, and he had told me, you know, how did you find this Wesley hymn, "Arise, My Soul, Rise? I mean, it's one of Wesley's best hymns, but the Methodists haven't had it in their hymn book for a hundred years. I said, well, the Presbyterians still have it in theirs. And uh, so we found it and um, have been singing it for a, for a while. And I think that one has gotten a lot of use in churches because it's an up-tempo song, yep. but it's also substantive. And it's hard sometimes to, You know, you start with worship, and sometimes the worship songs, like the worship leader is like way up here at this high spiritual pitch, and nobody else is there yet, and some of the songs aren't really giving us good reason to be there, Uh, but that's one that really calls us to focus on who God is, and even more particularly, Christ crucified at the table. It's pretty interesting to think of it that way, Uh, but in know Grace started basically just trying to, you know, find some other songs to sing. And some of these texts that we were finding, there weren't tunes for them. Right. They were from old hymnals um, and they dropped out of use. We weren't ever trying to deconstruct church music and retune hymns that were, had perfectly serviceable tunes that people were using. I think some people have misunderstood that, um, but I, some of the tunes that we wrote, I didn't know that people were still singing those hymns because I found them in other contexts. Yeah, and I was in a church where we had already given up singing hymns, we were only singing modern songs. So there was no going back as far as musical style, but I really wanted to find a way to, to sort of bring the past and connect it to sort of our authentic musical voice with my students. And one of the good things about college ministry is it's easier to introduce change and new ideas than right? yeah. in most churches. <laughs> so, you know, I could literally like hand out a hymn text on a Xerox piece of paper at my Sunday school class and say, let's try this to this tune and somebody write a tune for it this week and come back and we'll try it with your tune next week. You could never do that in a church, really. We've always done it this way in the last four years. You have. Yeah. Oh, that's college, what you right? Yeah, that's right. So college ministry is good. It's a great kind of place to experiment with the church that's coming. In some ways. Um, so so that I think that was kind of unusual. And then I had a background in recording engineering. So we made this CD because we gathered a bunch of these songs in 2000, hoping the church basically advanced us enough money to press 1,000 copies. We were hoping that we would be able to recoup that money and pay them back. And it just hit a nerve in a way that really surprised us. And since then, I've really kind of been trying to figure out why. Yeah. <laughs> what
0: are your Some thoughts? thoughts on why it's hitting a
1: nerve? It certainly hit a nerve with You them. know, yeah, but here's the, I found a sign in an antique store one time that said, my grandmother saved it, my mother threw it away, and now I'm buying it back. Say that again. <laughs> my grandmother saved it, my mother threw it away, and now I'm buying it back. I think a lot of things were sacrificed by the baby boomers in the pursuit of being relevant to the culture. And I think their children have wanted to connect to something that seems more rooted and not um, ephemeral. ephemeral. Honestly, I mean, those are the students I work with. And if you let them choose the songs, they want to sing songs about suffering. They want songs that speak to the real issues. They are worried that Christianity is just something that's been marketed to them or told to them as something that's cool. Yeah. And it's really helpful to sing a song written by somebody three, four hundred years ago, and find that their understanding of God and the gospel is the same as ours.
0: And I love that um, a lot of the songs that um, you've reintroduced or worked with do touch on suffering and lament. Yeah. Um, I love that because I'm a pessimist. <laughs> <laughs> and in touch with myself. <laughs> one, one complaint that I have heard is, you know, some of these songs are really, you know, like, they are be- they're great for Lent. Yeah, so sort of, have, you, have you heard that kind of complaint and, and what kind of reaction?
1: Uh, man, uh, some, not, not as much. Not from, my, not from young people. I don't get that from young people. Um, I think that you know, the best situation, you don't want to just sing hymns, right? I think right. You know, for, there's lots of good songs out there. Um, but I do think, I'm not just trying to pick songs that people like. Uh, as I said um, at the luncheon uh, message, I'm trying to pick songs that prepare my students for their encounter with death. And um, I don't know, these are the kind of songs that, that will help you die. John Wesley was asked one time why the Methodist movement spread so quickly. Uh, His simple answer, our people die well.
0: <laughs> uh,
1: you know, wow. In a day and age when people died at home yeah. with their friends and family around them. You know, contrast that. to
0: maybe more um, Sort of a um, optimism, kind of uh, sort of yeah you know, just constant sort of uh, praise and
1: uh, yeah. So I think you know I think there's a big paradigm shift in thinking about worship. Um, a lot of people tend to think of it as emoting before God, and I think, and certainly the Episcopal tradition, as I understand it, is dialogue. Right, that's the historic Christian tradition. Um, God speaks. We start with a call to worship. And then we have the invocation. We say help. Right? right? Send your spirit. And then God speaks and we respond. And there's that back and forth. Right? And um, I think in a lot of modern worship settings we've lost that. And people think of worship as the time where we just get to sing and tell God what we feel. And I would rather. Well, I, I hope that we can recapture some of the idea that worship is formative. And therefore we need to be filling our hearts mm-hmm with Christ and him crucified. And um, there should be some content to that. I'm going to talk tomorrow about, you know, Colossians where Paul says, you know, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs so that the word of Christ, the word about Christ can dwell in you richly. And um, yeah, those are the kind of songs. So my goal has always been, I don't want to, you, you can't just sing songs that people hate, but I do want to sing songs for more than just the fact that people like them. Right, and that's trying to find a balance. And there's a lot, like even some of the songs we're gonna sing tonight are ones that we don't use anymore. So you throw things out there and some of them right. stick, some don't, but then you come to a church in Birmingham and one of the ones that They're does right, right. with us. Yeah. And you can, it's like, it's always that way. Yeah. Some church, it's like their favorite song. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I don't think that one really worked very well. But it did but for somebody. You, yeah, that's okay, <laughs> no, it's great. I,
0: that's kind of part of the jazz of it. You so just never know when you create something, what's gonna happen with it. So I have a question that I don't want to slip away. If these okay. songs help us die, what songs will be at your funeral? Well, probably Dear Refuge of My Weird Soul. I, I think that would be a good one. Which you talked about we in talked your about that sermon recently. earlier yeah, today. That's right.
1: Um, I don't know. Well, there's a song that's not a hymn called All My Tears by a buddy of Julian Miller that I just love to death. I don't know if anybody knows that song. What are some but of the lines to it? Um It Don't Matter Where You Bury Me. Uh, I'll, I'll Be, be Home. So I'll Be Home and I'll Be Free. It's it's kind of an Appalachian okay. song. Um I don't
0: know. It's a it's cool song if you find it. Track again. Um your most recent project is uh, Joy Beyond the Sorrows, yes. which seems to be in touch with these mm-hmm. kind of minor keys or minor yes. themes of life. Can you yeah. unpack that a little bit? Yeah. Talk about that project. Yeah, so I think
1: you know, all these projects, they, they're not so, it's not like a high concept to them. It's when I have a combination of some time, some songs, and enough money to put together the next project, that's what we get to do. Right. Um, and they tend to, that tends to happen every couple of years. Um, but that one, a theme definitely emerged, and it was joy beyond the sorrow. In other words, the sorrow is real. Um, Isaiah 5 says, woe to those um, who, um, what is it what to those who call evil good and good evil and I think sometimes we can so elevate the sovereignty of God that we in effect do that and I, I, I didn't want to, to lose sight of the fact that suffering is real and it's here and it's present and yet it's not ultimate in the sense that there's a day coming when God will wipe away every tear so how already not yet you know I guess what you call ordinary time you know that's where we live most of the year in that already not yet, and how are there songs to help us steward that time? And it's not by mm-hmm. pretending that the sorrows are real, right. um, but it's also not losing sight. You know, like whenever we celebrate yeah. the Lord's Supper, right? We remember his death as we do it now, proclaim right. his death until he comes again. And I think the songs should do that same kind of thing. It's
0: almost if you if you don't have the joy if it's just sorrow, it's it's nihilistic. Would you say that that's true? I mean, you have to you have know. to go there and be in touch with the yeah. sorrow. Uh, you know,
1: Psalm 88 and darkness is my closest friend. Right. Ends. Yeah. There is a place for but that. There's the whole psalter. There is, but there's a place for that. Can, <laughs> but I don't think I don't know if you get through that just in the time <coughs> that it takes to sing one song. Right. Yeah, so yeah. I think you know I wouldn't want to say that we can't stay in Psalm 88. Isaac Watts, for instance. Translated 133 of the 150 Psalms. He didn't do Psalm 88. Wow. He said that he, he basically said it was too Jewish and he couldn't get Christian joy into it. I think that was a mistake. Wow. I think that was a mistake. And Anne Steele, who I talked about today, is the first songwriter, first hymn writer to write real events. And her hymns crossed denominational lines quicker than Watts or Wesley because it referenced the Psalms. It, it sort of spoke the spirit of the Psalms. And I think met people where they are. So I would never tell people that they need to get out of Psalm 88 too quickly. But to recognize that's part of the Christian life. Mm-hmm. But it's not all of it, right. you know? And there's a place even of communing with Christ in his sufferings, um, even in that place. Would it mean for Jesus to say in Psalm 88? You know? Or Psalm 22, right, which we think he sang from the cross. Which then echoes, you know, you find these echoes in Psalm 23. Anyway, I think all that stuff is, I've just been enriched in my understanding of the fullness of the gospel, and what did it feel like for Jesus to love us? Uh-huh. <laughs> it felt really hard, you know? So even people that are in the midst of that, they can find a place, even a place to connect with what it felt
0: like for Jesus to love his people. Uh, one person that you, you talk about a lot is Ann Steele. Yep. You talk a little bit about- more
1: about her and her background? Yeah, so she's an 18th century English hymn writer. If you're a fan of Downton or Jane Austen movies, she very much comes across like one of those characters. Um, There's been a lot of apocryphal stories about her. The story like that she, her fiance drowned the day before her wedding and she never did marry and was an invalid. Um, Some of that's true, but not the wedding story. She actually got quite a few wedding proposals and she turned them all down. Um, her dad was a pastor. She knew what it would be like to be a pastor's wife, and she felt like she would rather, you know, work on her poetry and so hang were out. So proposing to her. Yeah, some of these <laughs> were pastors were proposing to her. Some of them were good writers. Um, but she loved. She had a liter. There's a whole book about her and the literary circle of friends that would. It's very much like you know. Her dad was wealthy. He would, was a timber merchant and also a Baptist pastor. And um, she was well-educated, which was pretty unusual for the Baptists at that period. You know, um, If you were a non-conformist, you couldn't go to Oxford or Cambridge, at right. that period, right? Um, but she and her sister were well-educated, and she was quite skilled. She struggled a lot with assurance. Mm. With, you know, there's a difference between being a Christian and feeling confident that you're a Christian. I deal with a lot of students growing up in the South um, who've been made to feel like if they're not 100% sure, then they have no right to think they're a Christian. I had one kid, a youth pastor, told them that one time. If you're 99% sure, you're 100% lost. Well, I think that's dreadful theology and unbiblical. And um, I think Ann Steele's hymns are really helpful in even kind of sort of teasing out the difficulty of coming to assurance. And our assurance can kind of ebb and flow even when God's love for us doesn't. Um, so that's one of the things I think is really helpful about her hymns
0: it, yeah. and, you're, and you're, a, you're a pastor and yeah. uh, there's a there's a pastoral element to, to what you're doing Absolutely. you talk about
1: um, your pastoral reasons um, for that for is the reason Yeah. I never set out to uh, really like the hymns are a means to an end for me of uh, and even making the CDs are a means to an end of trying to get the gospel not just into people's heads but into their hearts I have a pastor, a friend, and mentor named Scotty Smith who talks about the importance not only of knowing the lyrics to the gospel, but hearing the music. And uh, Augustine said that he who sings prays twice. The right. music intensifies whatever we're doing, whether it's lament or praise. I'll talk about that a little bit okay. tomorrow. But that, yeah, it's always about pastoring. It's always about using every means possible to get the, uh, the gospel into our hearts. Um, in a beautiful, you know, there's a friend of mine who's passed away now, but he used to regularly pray at the beginning of times of worship, Lord, make Jesus more beautiful and believable to us. And that's what we're trying to do. And I want songs that are displaying Christ and his beauty. Um, and I think the ultimate beauty of Christ is seen
0: at the cross. Can you give some uh, words of advice to a captive audience um, who might be interested in, um, who are a part of a church, who might be interested in bringing in this type of music this genre of retuning yeah. old hymns or, or things within that um, well you got to start
1: with where you are and you probably would be wise to gather a maybe a committee of, of people so that which involves older and younger being able to talk about what it is that they value and worship because I find a lot of times the worship wars are people talking in within their own circles around each other and um uh, that would be one thing. And then it depends. Like If it's a church that's already using a lot of hymns, um, you got to see, what well, maybe they could use some more lament hymns. And they are not as many in the hymn books as there used to be. Um, some of the tunes that we've done might be helpful to them, the way to sing some hymn texts they'd like to sing. Some of them might musically be an easier entry point. Um, I don't really think there's probably any church that could do every song we've done on in Elvin Gray And And... <coughs> We've tried to have such a stylistic variety that it probably wouldn't fit any one congregation very well. Um, But then for other churches, they might be really into, you know, big rock band, high-powered worship, and you have to know why you're trying to do it. You don't want to just introduce new songs for the heck of it. So if you're trying to get the cross more centered, you know, in your worship, there's some songs that would fit that high-volume rock and roll sound that we've done that would get the cross back in there. Um, but maybe you're a church that you know you do a lot of hymns, but you want to sort of have music maybe that's a little more modern sounding. You might find some. So I'd say listen to a lot of the stuff that live CD that we did is, is a good starting yeah, point to
0: hear, hear what we've done. So I'll just hold that up. Yeah. This is the which is for sale on the web. So, so we did. It, did I forget it, to yeah. say this is from the hymn singing. Yeah. The so it's yeah, about so about, it. yeah, so about
1: ten years after we made the first CD. Um, we ended up being able to have a hymn singing at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville. It helped that our denominational national meeting was there, and it was directly across the street. And they all made the songs. Our, yes, and RUF <laughs> rented the Ryman for us, right? So all those things, Perfect Storm came together, and uh, my wife had the great idea to videotape it. So there's actually a movie of this, too, that's on YouTube. Yeah, you know, Roots. Roots and Wings, Roots the story of the double grace and the area But what I like about this is you can hear how these songs are used in worship, There were 2,000 people there, old and young alike, and you can hear them singing together. Uh, When we made that first CD 10 years ago, a lot of people were upset at the musical style, and we can talk about the musical style issues. I would just say, from my reading of the Letter to Galatians, I think we ought to be very careful about thinking there's one pure cultural expression of the gospel. And there's lots of ways that we can fall into that. Um, I think there are different musical cultural expressions and as I read the end of Revelation, we're going to have people from every race, tribe, tongue, and nation, you know, praising God, and the kings of the earth bringing their glory, bringing their splendor into the heavenly city. So somehow, we've got to be careful about not just having a monocultural um, experience in our in our worship. And um, but when I first did this, the, you know, this stuff, there was a lot of complaints about that. Ten years later, some of those songs <coughs> had sunk their way into people's hearts in a way that. Uh, it was remarkable to see people who had written me nasty letters ten years later finding that maybe there was some helpful things. And I think the young people singing when you know when you come to a conference and you see like your college students you know singing their hearts out you know these kind of rich hymns yeah. um, then maybe it gives you There's pause. Happening here. Yeah, you pause. But again, I understand that we've retuned some people's favorite hymns. Some of it I didn't know, and I didn't mean to, and I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and I really am not saying you should retune hymns for the yeah, I'm trying to find hymn texts that have fall out of use that I think would be useful. Yeah, like Amazing that.
0: Grace and like A Mighty Fortress might be about it. Like, right, yeah. But, you know, people like that. Yeah, angry. yeah, except Amazing Grace is
1: sung in a different tune in England.
0: Right, So yes, we get so yeah. married to certain tunes and think they're the quote of original, or original right. tunes. Right. Very rarely is that the case. Yeah, I noticed that. And I mean, we, we don't sing A Mighty Fortress thing. like it was written either. Right, the <laughs> film uh, Amazing Grace, if you watch that, yeah. he's singing it a totally different tune. Oh, yeah. the first time. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. the English tune, the
1: English tune in England is different, and it dropped out of the hymnals for a while. Until it got picked up here, yeah. So a lot of hymns have undergone changes, and people kind of hold them up as sacred things that can't be changed.
0: Right. But there's some changes that have been really good. Um, You know, in this sort of genre of retuning old hymns, Mm -hmm. uh, Indelible Grace certainly stands out as, um, if not the most popular, one of the most popular movements. What are are some other people that you're excited about right now who are um, doing things with music that we ought to know about? Um Wow, boy, th- there's a lot of cool stuff.
1: I mean, some of it's connected to us. So like Sandra McCracken. like three, forward. Yeah, Sandra McCracken has done some a couple records and she's part of our right. project, but she's also branched out on her own. The Bifrost yeah. art stuff is really cool. you um, say a little bit more about who's Bifrost. Bifrost, a Bifrost came out of RUF too. Um, a guy up in uh, Connecticut and then Isaac Bordell was friends of his and they've done some other projects. They're in Charlottesville, Virginia now at a PCA church right. there. Um, so, they're, doing, they're not doing as many retune hymns. They're even doing like pieces of service music you know, within the more traditional liturgy and different things. But honestly, um, there's a conference I was at not too so long ago called Doxology and Theology that was, man, about 500 people, mostly under 30, who were writing some really great modern songs, um, words, and music that are full of gospel stuff. Good stuff. So there was a lot of people like Matt Papa and Matt Boswell, and um, you know, did Sojourn Church up in Louisville. There's really a lot of this stuff going on. Talk to us about Rain for Roots and okay. what
0: connection you have to that. Right. Well, um,
1: I know all those those girls. There's four girls, right, who are four part ladies. of our community. Four ladies. Yes, yeah, sorry. I knew them when they were college students. So sorry. Um, four ladies now yeah, with their own kids. They had. Um, Really been impacted by Sally Lowe Jones, the Jesus Storybook Bible, no. and then found that there was another book, right? Was it the Huggle Bible?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was basically the based on. The yeah, Bible. and so
1: they went to Sally, and they were like, "We would like to set these poems, which is what all those chapters were." the music and make this recording, and they
0: did, and it was beautiful. And that's a great example of, you know, that's a genre of music that often can set my teeth on edge. You know, yes, children's, children's music, music yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, can and, and, actually, and I can listen to that without my daughters yeah. in my car yeah. and, and forget that it's children's music. Yeah, that's
1: right. And children's hymns, some of them are really dreadful too. Right. Yeah. But Rain For Roots. Is Rain For Roots is a cool thing, on. yeah, yeah. And there's just so much stuff. Um, a friend of mine, Bruce Benedict, um, runs a website called Cardaphonia, and he keeps track of lots of independent worship projects done by churches all over him. He cataloged, since we made our first adult grace CD, a thousand retune hymns. Wow. So a lot of it is grassroots, and it'd be hard to find it unless you have like, a curator like Cardaphonia to find it. Um, it's not necessarily the most popular stuff, but I have seen people really grab hold of it and it really impact
0: them in huge ways. Um, just uh, I'll ask you two more questions. <laughs> what, what do you think the, uh, the, the future holds um, for what you're doing personally and uh, for this uh, movement of music in the church? Right. I, I think
1: recently the scholarly community has started to get interested in it, um, which seems about right after about 10 or 15 years that they kind of pick up on. So, (laughs) you know, I'm a member of the Hymn Society, and the latest issue of Hymn, which is their journal, had a 10-page article on the Retune Hymn movement. And they invited some of us to present a a Retune Hymn Festival at their annual conference, uh, summer before last. Um, I've been invited next year to be a kind of a, I guess, musician in residence at Baylor for their church music program. So I'm seeing some more, of that sort of thing, which I think is good, because I think it would be good for the maturity of the movement to interact with more people outside of our little circle. I've also um, been trying to get more um, cross-cultural expressions. Um, I had a guy recently give me about 75 Spanish translations of the hymns that oh. I have to put up on our uh, website, and I've got another guy who's gonna give me about 40 or 50 Chinese translations. But then also I've been trying to even set some in a more black gospel music style. I'm always trying to, here's what I would say. Learn from this idea, but don't necessarily just do these songs. Like you've gotta figure out who you are and how you can incarnate this idea. The heart of the idea is roots and wings. Wanting to help our young people be rooted in the tradition but add their own voice. So it's neither traditionalism or it's not throwing out the tradition and just creating all the things, but finding a way to bring those together. And yet different congregations are gonna do that in a different way. So rather than just say, you have to do all these songs and do them like we did with our arrangements, that has a lot to do with the musicians we have and the instrumentation we have. But take the idea, go look through these old hymnals yourself. I love to give old hymnals to um, musicians and songwriters because I know even if they don't write a good tune, they're gonna be meditating on those texts. And pastorally, that's a great thing. What's the name of a good old hymn <laughs> You know, Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, has a book called Our Own Hymn Book. It's reprinted now, it's paperback, has a thousand hymn texts and no music in it. That's a really good one to start with. But you you know, Google Book Search is the greatest thing right. because you can get PDFs of so many great antique hymnals that I've had to spend a lot of money to buy. Um, <laughs> and you can get them for free. Right. Um, yeah, every, you, every, every Charles Wesley hymn text is on Duke's website. <coughs> Six thousand hymns, wow. so there's there's really quite a lot to draw from, um, and it's it's uh it's a good spiritual
0: exercise I think. Tell us, I I love the name Double Grace. Um, right. Tell us, this is the last question before mm-hmm. we we'll transition into that some comes music. From comes yeah, from talk talk about that a little bit. Yeah,
1: I think we were trying to figure out what would be a good name for that first CD. And um, somewhere along, I just hit on the idea of looking for a, sort of a piece of a hymn text that was on the record. And there's one. Um, my name. It's a Augustus Top Lady hymn. Top Lady wrote, Rock, uh, of uh, yeah. Yes, and this is a great example of a hymn change that was a good one. He originally wrote, um, "When my eye strings break in death." When my eye strings break uh-huh. in death which is basically a tendon that snaps when you dries out and then your eye pulls back. Wow. It's not a great <laughs> image. And George Whitfield changed it to when my eyes shall close in death. And that's a good image. Yeah. So, you know,
0: for those that think that him should never be changed, <laughs> it's serious, uh,
1: yeah. Well, he wrote another one called A Debtor to Mercy Alone, of Covenant Mercy, I sing. And it has a line, My name from the palms of his hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart it remains in marks of indelible grace. Such a great line. Yeah. And it actually comes from the book of Isaiah. Uh, one of the things that the Baal worshippers would do is carve the name Baal into their palms. And Isaiah, God through Isaiah, takes that image and turns it around. Instead of you having to carve the name of your God, wound yourself so that you would never forget who you serve. He does it. He us. does it. Yeah. I, and just that's why I always it really think of started.
0: the like, indelible ink. Yeah. in other countries that yeah. they have to put on their thumbs when, when people
1: vote. Oh, when they vote, and then you, you know, know, and they can't. And they it doesn't vote. leave you. Uh, yeah. It sticks with you. Yeah. So I love that 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 uh, text. Good, well, uh, we're going to transition
0: into uh, to a couple more songs, and the next okay. one is I Ask the Lord. So can you talk to us yes. about that song and then we'll yeah. sing it? Yeah. That's one
1: that for years, I just would take that text and I would hand it to students because um John Newton, in his letters, which I highly recommend to anybody, the letters of John Newton, said that, um, that a maturing Christian is somebody who often feels like God has abandoned them. That new Christians, God often gives them sort of extra feelings because they don't know anything. But at some point, he wants to draw them to a deeper place. Um, and often it's by withdrawing his presence. The Puritans were big on sort of understanding that dynamic as well. Well, um, that, you know, um, that song, I would use that text a lot of times to try to talk to students about that because I found a lot of them were maybe in that stage, but they were still trying to get back to a mountaintop experience they had in junior high camp and thought that that's what maturity was. And if John Newton's right, he's the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, so we like that, I don't know if you trust him on this, but I think he's right that that's more of a state of immaturity that God wants sometimes to get us beyond. William Cooper, who was part of the Only Hymns from which this book, or this hymn, I Ask the Lord, came from, wrote another wonderful hymn called Sometimes a Light Surprises the Christian While He Sings. Uh-huh. Sometimes. Not all the time, every time. Right? <laughs> and I think that's important. You know, again, when you sing a song, you're modeling for people what the normal Christian life feels like. Don't lie to them. Okay. So this one, I asked the Lord that I might grow. It's strong medicine. And uh, a girl finally put that text to music to a tune that, that we felt like worked pretty well. And um, I, you know, it came out of this hymn book that John Newton and William Cooper were gonna write together. And then William Cooper was struck with insanity and didn't finish. And there's a line in the hymn that we're gonna sing that says, it seems that the Lord had crossed my fair design. That same phrase shows up in the preface to the hymn book where Newton says, it seemed that the Lord had crossed our fair design. We planned to write this group of hymns. I mean, Cooper was the poet laureate of England, and he wants to write hymns for the church. And then he struck out with insanity and can't complete his part of the project. And Newton said he almost set the thing aside and didn't finish it, but finally decided to pick it up again. And um, so it's a pretty, it's a pretty amazing thing. I'll tell you one more story. I had a student who told me the first time she ever came to an REF meeting, um, it was one of our conferences and there were five hundred students singing that hymn. And this is a girl who had been, you know, burning herself, through all kinds of self destructive stuff, suicidal, you know, thoughts a lot, struggling a lot. And she said she'd run up, you know, her dad was a pastor. And she said like the first time she saw five hundred of her peers singing that hymn, it was like life to her soul. And you would think, Well, it's kind of a Dark song, but to, for her to say, "Here's 500 of my peers. I'm not the only one that feels like
0: this." Right? Um, it's a great example. She said it saved be, her life. Great example of what we were talking yeah. about before. Um, so let's uh, let's try it. Let's stand and, and join in singing. I ask the Lord. Okay. We'll give you time to get down. <laughs> That's right. I was going to walk in front,
1: I thought my wife was going to yeah. stage dive. Yeah, that'd be awesome. <laughs> Good thing about hymns is once you learn one verse, you know the music for the other verses. Yeah, and this one doesn't have a chorus; it's got no uh, curveballs coming at you. So, uh, we can get it here. yeah. So we're gonna sing one more. This is a um, love that oh, won't let me go, and this is this is one that you may actually know a tune for, um, but the tune that we do is more of like a little bluegrass kind of tune. This. Uh, the hymn was written by a guy named George Matheson. When uh, George Matheson was in seminary in the 1800s, he began to lose his sight. The woman that he was married to uh, left him said so she couldn't go through life married to a blind man. He eventually um, ended up living, sharing a home with his sister and um, became a pastor at a pretty large church. But um, the, the night that he wrote this hymn was the night of his sister's wedding. And he had stayed behind and everyone else Uh, went there to the wedding. He said that something of incredible sadness passed between him and the Lord. And I don't think it takes too much speculation, imagination to imagine what he must have been thinking, who's going to care for him now, um, his wedding that never um, happened, all those sorts of things. And uh, what's cool, he originally wrote, not when I trace the rainbow through the rain, but when I climb the rainbow. The idea is that the covenant promise of God Changes the way we endure trials. One of the Puritans used to say that if you aren't clear on justification by faith and God's love for you, that it makes every trial a double trial, because not only are you struggling, but you're wondering, "Has God decided He no longer loves me in this?" So to understand the covenant promise and that 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 you know in the Hebrew, the story of Noah where God gives the bow. Um, it's the word for a Hebrew battle bow. It's not like a rainbow. It's not like a bow you put in your hair. And the sign that God gives that he wouldn't destroy the world by a flood again is a battle bow cocked and aimed at God himself. We live on the other side of the cross when that battle bow was loosed upon God the Son. And therefore, when trials come, we look at a crucified God who sealed the promise so the promise is not in vain, and we can climb the rainbow through the rain. We don't just look for a silver lining in the cloud, right? We look at the covenant promise. And um, that's why I think this hymn, you know, the tune has a little more pep to it. Because the hymn of great joy comes out of a really uh, difficult thing. So let's have fun with this one. Oh, sorry. Am I doing the right one or do I just do that?
0: No, no, we're, we're gonna open it up to q uh, audience QA time. So if you all want to be seated and Kevin, if you join me back up yeah. here. If anybody wants to ask Kevin some questions, there's a a mic right up front. Um, do be shy. <laughs> I'll do it. Testing, testing. <laughs> <laughs> this, this guy knows what he's
1: doing. Oh, right? uh, it's a hard time. He can handle a mic. <clears throat> uh, hey, Ken, I'm, I'm, I'm a... The oh, yeah, it Bill.
0: It Bill Oh, yeah. Bill? Oh, yeah. Oh, you're yeah. okay. Um,
1: so one thing I was thinking about was uh, we're gonna attempt our own hand in a project this summer. Oh, okay. And I if there's one thing I, I hate more than anything, it's PR. Um, I enjoy doing music, but I don't like uh, I'm not gifted at advertising. So obviously you guys did a really good job somehow of putting your music in the hands of people where it's actually your money actually, the money you spent making the recording yeah. actually was helpful. So, right, what did you guys find to be the best way? I mean, obviously you do yeah. it on iTunes or whatever, but yeah, you gotta get people to look at it. Right, that that's much harder now than it was when we started. Because when we started, there wasn't really anything like it, and word spread. It also, you know, movements require kind of cultural gatekeepers. Being in Nashville helped. Being at a place called Christ Community Church helped. Um, There was an organization that doesn't exist now that picked up the CD and distributed it to bookstores early on. Um, there, There are ways to get the word out, but I would say most of the churches that I know that do these projects are probably overly optimistic about how many they'll be able to sell. So I don't want to discourage you, but just, you know, it's hard, and the music business is different now. We sell a lot less CDs per project than we used to. Um, my kids do nothing but walk listen to Spotify, right? And you know that's probably true of most of my college students too. So it's it's harder to get the word out there. But I would say, you know, pro- the projects are hard to make, and there's a lot of work involved. And generally, I would say less is more, because most of the projects that people send me, because sometimes I want to record some my songs, I'm like you can do it for free, just get my permission and send me a CD. I'd like to hear it. Most of them have way too much junk on them. Everybody's playing every note on every verse and there's no space. Mm-hmm. So um, that you know that, that's one thing. And people that can play and sing well live may not be able to do so well under the, the microscope of the studio. Sure. Um, so finding a producer can help. We can talk more about it, but, uh, but I think it's cool to have music arise out of your own local context and then be able to record it and share it with people. And I think that's a really special thing. It's a little tricky when the church becomes a record company because if you pay royalties and you got a 1099, everybody, even if you pay $1, it's there's lots of complications to it that you should know about or people get their feelings hurt you with
0: know, that.
1: Cool. Yeah, but we get coffee afterwards and yeah, we'll yeah, talk go. some more right,
0: about that. Thanks. Anybody else have any questions, please? I uh, First of all, thanks for a few projects.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, how and I think the choreography of circumstance,
0: how the movement was able to pull from artists in Nashville. Right, so just that you were centered there, they were centered there, yes. all of that kind of combined, and and the people, the Matthew Perry, and John, yeah, Sandy McCracken, yes, so them. they were How all part of our group. How did you get all all those people?
1: Together? They were all part of our group. That's part of being in Nashville. Yeah, I really, you know, I'd been in the music business, but I didn't want to just get my friends mm-hmm. and find the best singers and best players that I could. Sometimes that was hard. Like, you know, I had thirty different people that we used on that first CD except for Wes King, who was my roommate, Um, and maybe one other person, Buddy Green, who maybe played some harmonica, he was an elder at our church. Other than that, they were all from our group. But in my college group, I had Sam McCracken, I had Matthew Cameron Jones, I had the Jarza Clay guys. That's part of being in Nashville and being at Christ Community Church. And then my own background was as a recording engineer and a guy that I knew let us have a studio for free. So that was, you're right, the choreography, the way all that stuff came together um, was pretty remarkable. Yeah. But some of those people kind of went on, their careers developed more after that first project. So when I was on the rhyming stage, people asked me, what did that feel like? I must have felt like a proud father, because these were my kids. And now 10 years later, here they are playing the rhyming and they deserve to be there, because they're you know really great, so many of them. A couple people married into it, you know, like if they married somebody. But I really have resisted just going out, even songs. like. People try to send me songs and like, this really is about kind of our community uh, who fell in love with these hymns and wanted to share that with the world. Um, it's not about trying to find the best retune hymns out there and find the best singers out there. Um, and now I've got such kind of a group over the years that it's almost hard to know how to include everybody anymore. But yeah, that was just a God thing.
0: Any other questions?
1: Andrew. Uh-oh. Here it comes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kevin, discerning your call, um, had, did you ever think about pulpit ministry or, or is it... right That's now? what I do. Well, I, yes, yes. yes, yes, yes. But I mean, mean, in the no. sense of like anything beyond, right, is it, uh, just piggybacking on the last yes. question, the perfect storm of yeah. not only being... Christ Community Nashville, yeah. but right. at Belmont where you have lots yeah. of students to right. exploit. Right. Uh, good. It's, how it's it, it helps, and so how God gives you there, where if right. you were to be, you know, preaching at, you know, in a, a permanent pulpit in right. church anywhere else, right. even
1: in Nashville, what would it look like? Yeah. What would it look like? Yeah. I don't know. I don't think I would want to take a permanent church if I had to completely quit doing this because I feel like part of this has become mm-hmm. a big part of who I am. But it really did start as a way to sort of minister to college students and be with them in the in the stuff they were doing. I had a lot of singer-songwriters and we just would play music. Before I had Sandra and Matthew and some of these singer-songwriters, I had students into jazz and we had a little jazz group where we'd go play the little jazz clubs. So it's always part of incarnational ministry and college ministry gives you a little more flexibility sometimes than kind of what, probably what you do. Um, but I think, you know when I went off to seminary, I thought I was done with music. And I remember when I was recruited into RUF, Mark Lowry, who started RUF, asked me what he thought, this was now coming out of seminary, he asked me what I thought my musical background, how that would be used in RUF. And my vision was so big that I said, well maybe if we have a conference, I could do a seminar on the arts sometime. That's really all I thought that I would do going back. So I fully intended to go back and just be a pastor of college students And I still am vocationally. I'm a pastor of college students. And every couple years in the summer, when the college students aren't there, I can sometimes pull enough time together to to make a CD. But I really am a full-time pastor even now. This is more unusual. I don't lead worship at our church or at REF Group, um, that kind of stuff. So I do think you know. I remember C.S. Lewis said one time that you know he basically lost his faith when there's this. Kind of atheist guy that used to give him a ride in school would sort of break him down, and he said he attributed a lot of his ability to break down arguments to going through that crucible. And I feel like God doesn't waste anything, but He has remarkable creativity in bringing things back together that you never would have thought was going to happen. But fortunately, I'm not a good singer, so I can't really like go be a worship leader at a church. <laughs> you know, it's not and not that I want to do that. I feel like I'm called to preach and teach. And I try to impact and influence and get music people to, to devote a little of their time and energy to write songs for the church within my sphere of influence. Say that yeah. well, so I don't know, yeah, I don't know if I'd want to take a church if I couldn't do some of that still, but I don't know exactly what it would look like. But I usually only go out of town a couple times in a semester to do something like this, and I usually only do things that are like a conference where I feel like pastors and worship leaders will be there, or if I go to a different denomination, then that usually, then I'll say, yeah, I'd like to do that. I'd like to see this movement spread to other, you know, church communities. So that's kind of
0: how I think about that. Well, thank you for, with yeah. having said that, thank you so much for, for being here tonight. So this is for- a great treat for us to be able to, to come down here. And- Get away for a little bit. I've been a huge you. fan for years, so it's just an honor to sit here and talk to you and spend the day with you. And tomorrow, if you want to hear more of Kevin, he is preaching at 12.05 in our yeah. in our church. Um, hopefully the weather's better tomorrow. It should yeah. be. Um, and, and thank you so much to Glenn Lewis, our music director, yeah. and to our band tonight. <laughs> and everyone who helps a lot of people actually um, help put this on, set up the stage and all this audio equipment. Um, And uh, and also I should mention, uh, Kevin's wife, uh, Wendy, is here. Um, Our cameraman couldn't make it because of the weather. And it turns out that she knows how to deal with the camera. So she's (laughs) taking a little bit of footage for us. So hopefully we'll be able to put some of this online. Um, And I should mention one last time that the two CDs we mentioned, the Joy Beyond the Sorrows, and the uh, hymn sing are available for sale right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you want to pick up a copy, yeah. um, and there's a you know there's a Facebook group,
1: Indelible Grace Facebook group, right, you know, which uh, I'm on. Yeah, kind of hear about different things going on. And I have a few copies of this left over. There's like a little one page thing. If you want to know a little bit about, is that Dear Refuge? No, it's more uh, like what is Indelible Grace and the website and. Anyway, so, so maybe we could put that on the table. Put that back
0: there. So if you want to take this, and you're welcome to it. So our final song before we end is one that you, you're surprised that we, we sing. And yeah. I, you know, that I have heard this. There's just a few songs that you hear and you think, just off the bat, wow, that's amazing. I heard it in the car and I texted Len while I was driving, we've got to do this song during (laughs) Lent. (laughs) I liked it that much, but you were surprised. to hear that we do it, so so can you talk about it for a little bit? I've been fascinated
1: by the Great Litany for a while, the idea that Jesus didn't begin suffering at the cross, but from the Incarnation. (laughs) And um, I think I found a version of the Great Litany in a Moravian book, and have used that as a corporate prayer a lot, and when I found this you know, versificate setting of it, I thought that would be cool. But I also thought within all of the sufferings of Jesus, there's something that answers our need. And so that's why I thought about doing it as more of a blues, more even like a black gospel kind of feel, because it just seemed yeah, you know, it was there's an article by a guy named BB Warfield called the emotional life of our Lord where he talks about, you know, Jesus was you know, poor. He was poor and he didn't have a home, he was circumcised on the eighth day, and his flesh didn't need to be cut. All of that was for us. And I thought that there was a great place of meeting there. So that's kind of where it it came from. And I was a church that was trying to be more kind of cross-racial. And I was thinking, how could I maybe even explore what retune hymns would look like in a different musical, cultural context?
0: So that's kind of where I came from. Well, I'm excited to sing it. Let's stand and sing one last song before we yeah. end. And please uh, grab a few desserts before before you leave. Thanks. again. So this one really, you know, it. it well, it should be
1: familiar to uh, Episcopalians. Hear our prayer, hear our cry. That there's an echo. So that, you know, they will sing and then you echo. Um, you can sing all of it if you want, but the way we originally envisioned it was a leader singing the lines, and then the congregation hear our prayer, hear our prayer, much like we do the prayers of the people. I don't know if that's how you do that. Um, but this is a musical way of doing that. Um, it's a little bluesy, this one, I Thank um, <laughs>
0: you, Please feel free to stick around for a little while and grab some desserts, buy some CDs, and uh, say uh, hello to Kevin. Thank you so much. Thank you.